Hi, Nancy. Hey, Shane. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Jane. I realize we're never like consistent on whether we say actually hi to you, Lauren, when we do this. I know. This, I'm usually just sitting here silently. Yeah, we're going to do it today. Watching you Why guys. Uh, I wanted to ask um, either of you, both of you. La Puma, I know you're not a runner. La Pumas are not runners. Yeah, I know that's a statement. We're not. Nancy, have you ever ran? Have I ever ran? Well, no, like that's I a run. thing. <laughs> I ran a 5K once and uh, a couple times. Yeah. Um, and um, toward the end, when I wasn't doing so well, I saw this. 85 year old man with one lung who I interviewed for the paper mm-hmm. ahead of me. So I <laughs> I booked it and I beat wow. him. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Wait, what a way to like feel bad about yourself. Uh, I remember uh so I'm 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 not I I run, but uh I got into running really like a lot when I was in grad school because this girl I was interested in was a runner, runs marathons and stuff. It all makes sense and now. So, yeah. So, like, the first time we ever went on, like, a long run together, I was like, yeah, I'll run, like, 5K with you. And I ended up running, like, 10 or 11 miles with her after this, like, long run. Um, Humble brag but, right there. But no, 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 no. <laughs> this is not where that's going. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> no. I didn't realize just how great I was at running. Well, so so not that time, but, like, I think a time or two after that, we ended up going on, I don't even know, remember. It was it was long. It was, like, 13, 14. And afterwards, um, my body shut down. Uh, I'm not, it's, it's not, like, going to get graphic or anything, but, like, I was – I. I couldn't really leave my house for a couple of days because like parts of my body just were not operating in the way they should. And so this, I guess just from the running or were like you dehydrated? Well, or? so yeah, it's like, it was like related to kind of dehydration mm-hmm. and, and stem from like a larger issue and whatever else. Like I'm fine, but it was like the straw that broke the camel's back. And so Ugh. I like, that's, that's what I get, I guess for, what? for, I guess for being such a, you so know, what happened with trying the girl? to impress the girl. For- <laughs> yeah. With your running skills. Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Nancy Bompy. And I'm Lauren LaPuma. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. Cool running story, Shane. (laughs) Thanks. Cool story, bro. (laughs) Uh, No, okay. So we're talking about, there's a reason we're we're talking about running, uh, but it's only a small part of what we're talking about here today. Uh, We're actually going to be more focused on mining and public lands and indigenous tribes here in the U.S. and all sorts of things. We're we're all over the place. Uh, But this is part, um, this is our second Voices for Science episode. We're doing one of three or I guess this is two of three, uh, where we talk to our Voices for Science advocates um, about their research and them as people. And the one we're talking to today, or talked to, I guess, months ago, uh, is a trail runner and has actually been featured in, like, she's a brand ambassador. Uh, She's been featured in REI's blog about being, like, a kick-ass trail runner who also does, like, really neat things. Uh, So, yeah, and, like, about, like, people who are changing the world, uh, trail runners who are changing the world. Does that mean... Impressive. Does that mean she gets a really big discount at REI? Oh, I, good I, question. Ooh, we do need to ask her that. I, yeah, I probably have a call coming know. up soon. I'll, I'll, I'll figure it mm-hmm. out. Uh, okay, so enough of us. Let's meet her. So first I'm going to greet myself in my traditional language. I'm Pascua Yaki, and we chol. And so my language is Lua Sanchoniva and Apo Lydia. And so I'm Lydia, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Arizona. I am a soil microbiologist and I study mining reclamation. And then I'm doing my minor in American Indian policy. And so I'm specifically looking at mining that happens on public lands, but that tribes have ancestral claims to. I never really uh, 
I guess I never really thought about mining and how that pertains to tribal communities. I'm I'm from East Coast. I'm from rural uh, coal country. So I thought about it in that way. Um, but I'm like a white dude. And so my worldview, US view, whatever it might be, can be a little myopic. Uh, so I was really excited. Uh, Lauren and I got to sit down with Lydia um, to maybe expand our views and provide some insight into um, who she is and kind of like what she does. So tell us, um, not to sound totally just dumb, um, tell us a little bit about kind of your story of your community and how, how you got to where you are. Yeah, so it's actually really interesting because I didn't grow up in my community. My parents split up when I was really young, and so I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and that's a, what they call Tewa land, or a lot of Pueblo nations are out there, and so that's who I grew up around. I'm, you guys have probably heard me talk a little this weekend, I'm an avid trail runner, and that's what's something I grew up doing um, in New, northern New Mexico has beautiful places to run. But it also, like many parts in the Southwest, has a legacy of mining in that community. Mm -hmm. And so outside of where I live, there is a couple of old abandoned mining towns. So that got me thinking about it. And then just growing up, I would see so many friends in their different communities really fighting to advocate and protect their communities from being mined. So it got me thinking about that a lot as well. When I went away to undergrad and I went to California State University, Monterey Bay, there, I studied environmental science and actually marine sciences because I just I wanted to be outside. That's always what I've been I love to do. Um, and there, I, I was actually introduced for the first time to really thinking about environmental justice. My undergrad undergrad graduate career um, really required us to do some kind of uh, outreach component in our school in our classwork. And so then I worked actually with um, farm working families and teaching them. Well, one, learning about pesticide exposure, but also ways to reduce pesticide exposure. And so as we were working with these families, they look so much like the kids I grew up around, you know, browned, but like learning about the pesticide exposure and actually how it has all these developmental impacts made me think about what kind of impacts have happened in my own life or in my family's life, you know? And so, that I think really made me think about whatever kind of science I want to do, as I know I want to go to graduate work, I really want to make sure it does something to serve communities mm -hmm. and really you know, use science and service because historically, especially Native communities, that has not been the case. It's kind of been more of an exploitative practice. So what does, like, what does your work look like? Like you go out into the field, what are you actually doing? Yeah, so I actually work with mining companies, which is really interesting. <laughs> um, and I think that mining companies are also understanding that they wanna make data-driven decisions. So we go out and we look at the different places that they have mining waste. And they've been done a variety of different strategies to clean it up. One of them is actually, they call it cap and plan, and it's taking soil from the desert and putting it on top of the mining waste to stabilize it. Mm -hmm. But then also helping get plants grow on top of that mining waste to further prevent from any wind or water erosion. And so we go out there with buckets and our hard hats and our steel-toed boots, which in the Sonoran Desert means it's really hot. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and we dig holes. So um, we, we tend to dig holes along, along transects and really look at areas where plants are growing well and compare that to areas that aren't growing as well. Because that will tell us a lot about the under soil, the below ground health of the soil. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I tend to focus on is specifically the microbial growth 
Um, I think that those are really important indicators that haven't been studied as much. We also look at some chemistry and then a little bit of the physics, the soil physics, and looking at aggregate formation. This reminds me a lot of a couple episodes ago when we interviewed Laura Wagner and she joked about uh, how she got a PhD in digging holes yeah. to bury no, seismology equipment. It's funny. It's funny from like from I guess from all of our previous lives as researchers in some capacity. I remember one of my weird things was I was doing pesticide work and um, it was putting pesticide in like water, like these giant tubs of water. And I remember walking around like out in the middle of a field, like essentially a football field with these giant tubs, like pipetting pesticides out of like a Erlenmeyer flask into water and I have like I don't know like field clothes on and then like I'm all suited up also like a like a microbiologist I I felt very fancy I guess I feel Uh, like we have that here though I mean you have that in every job like some random thing that you have to do that you're like I can't believe I'm doing What's your thing now at HEU that you can't believe? Like this right now? Is yeah. it like literally this? No, not this right now. <laughs> this is good. It's like foam eating, like counting the amount of plugs in the room. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh yep. You are a professional uh, plug counter. I could be a meeting planner after these um, oh. PG foam eating. Put it in your resume. Yes. So have you what have you been into these like these mine waste areas? Like what do they look like? What is it like being there? Yeah, so... I think I want to talk about two parts, right? So first is going and seeing a mining pit. Because the first time you see one, I think it's really shocking. They are these giant kind of... I work on open mining pits, or the sites that I work on. Um, And they're like these open Vs, and they go down really, really deep. I mean, you can fit, you know, the tallest building um, in them. And... They have kind of different color variations and they're all kind of kind of layered or tiered um, as they go up. Mm-hmm. And so that's like where the metal itself comes from. And then you can see where it actually goes through this whole process of that's where the, the metal and the rock are at. But you have to go through this whole process of extracting the metal of interest, which in my case is copper, from the and separate it from the rock material. And so the waste that I work on with actually is called tailings. And that's the byproduct after you've gotten the metal out then you have this tailings material, which is very finely ground up surrounding rock um, about the size and consistency of, of cooking flour. And that gets stacked up into these big gray piles, also kind of tiered. And so when you drive by in, in where I'm at in the Sonoran Desert, you drive by that highway, you can see these gray kind of stacks. But that's actually what we're trying to work on and make things grow on top of is these gray stacks. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- yeah, it's kind of this weird gray sludge. But I think that's the best thing to describe it as. Wow. Yeah. I don't think I ever thought about uh, what's what like mine waste in the desert would look like. Like I like I mentioned, I'm, I'm from no rural. Who oh. who would think of that? I, she does. I know. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. If right? you're not involved with it, no. I mean, like, I'm used to. Like, I wonder what mine waste in the desert well, looks like. I mean, I, I'm so I'm used to like Coke. Do you know what Coke ovens are? No. Okay. What Coke? Coca Cola? Oh, it's just here we go. No, oh, like Lord. I've heard of it, but I I, yeah. I wouldn't know what coal, it is. It's a byproduct of coal, right? Or a yeah, kind of coal, coal was like baked yeah. and turned into a different type of fuel. Yes. These things yes. are littered all through Pennsylvania, like where I'm from. They're just like carved into a hillside. They're giant. Picture like outdoor, um, like fancy outdoor grills, like the stone ones that people build into their houses, like pizza Except ovens. For, what's that? Like pizza, like ovens? pizza ovens. Only yeah, but Except like much bigger, ah. much dirtier, like built into the side of hillsides. So, like that's what I'm really used to. Mm-hmm. So. 
But no, I guess I've never thought about Nancy, about <laughs> what it looks like in deserts. <laughs> so aside from this waste issue, mm-hmm. um, what is what is the research that she's doing really focus on? Well, we find out. My research group works with three different active mining sites. I've chose to focus on one in particular. And the reason why I chose this site is um, half of the land for this particular mining site is leased from the tribal nation, that's on Otham Nation. And the other half is actually on private land. And so it's been really interesting because of the part that's leased from the tribe, they've had different management strategies in comparison to that that's on private land. Could can you explain so, a little bit? Yeah. yeah. And so partially that's because the tribe is like, if you're going to lease this land to then extract from, we have stipulations that we want you to do to make sure that our community is protected. Mm-hmm. So they're a little bit more strict than the mining company would be on their own private property. And that's really interesting implications, right? Um, so one example is most of the mining companies will use between 6 to 12 inches of, of, of soil cap on top of that material, on top of the waste, and they decided that they want 12 inches mm-hmm. all around. Um, and they also chose which plants to put on to the, um, the waste material. And they chose plants that are culturally significant and that are going to survive well in the area. And so they worked a lot with the Bureau of Land Management, who had like a list of about 55 plants. <laughs> and, the, and the tribe and the BLM and the mining company then went ahead and decided which plants to pick. And mm-hmm. so they picked about seven overall, and they've grown really well. Um, there's certain sections that they actually added a mulch amendment, so kind of adding mulch segments to help stimulate the plant growth, and that's been really effective in those areas. And so now, as you see, it's been almost nine years over since they've been seeding seeded that area, and you see deer populations running around there. You see coyotes when we're out. We see a lot of wild horses, and so it's really cool. And every time we go out and sample, we have to have a tribal monitor who's from the tribe to make sure that we're doing things in a respectful manner. And they always come out and they're like, wow, I had no idea it's so good out here. (laughs) And that's the goal we want. But now working on the property that's owned by the mining site, they want to replicate that, but they've only done six inches there. But it's really interesting to see using the same plant species the tribe picked, they're actually getting very good results. And so that's something that's for consideration is these whole ideas of islands of fertility when you get really high dense vegetation happening in one area, how that seeds can then actually migrate to this other area Mm -hmm. um, and help stabilize the plant growth. So there's a lot of interesting applications for just the seed component of it. If we only seed certain areas, how that might impact um, the other areas that are adjacent and not have to spend as much money, so. Yeah, you kind of have a, almost like an accidental experiment going on. Yeah. Yeah. I really love this idea of doing an accidental experiment. Oh, I know. It's great. You know, I, I kind of feel that every time I cook, it's like an accidental <laughs> experiment. <Yeah. laughs> you never know what's going to happen. Is I it, thought you were a good cook. Usually, but not always just on the because, first try. Just because she said experiment doesn't mean it's bad. Maybe yeah. she's not following the directions. I don't. Did, oh. Now he's just criticizing you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, so this is this is um, I really like hearing kind of like what she's doing, how she's making these connections and all of that now. But um, I was interested in what she ultimately kind of uh, plans to do with her with her career. Have you thought about kind of like down the road um, where you want to go, either like with your science or professionally or how you want to keep um, like keep these intersections going? Oh, that's like th- such a hard question for me because this is something I'm constantly thinking about, sure. right? Um, I am really interested in the science topic, but I actually think I'm really interested in the policy component of it as well. Um, I love being in the field. The laboratory and the, and the work that I've been doing, I've 
because I've been there so much. I think I'm a little bit ready to take a little bit of a break <laughs> from there. Um, but I think this topic mm-hmm. is really important. It's this idea of sustainable development and sustainable for who, right? Um, so I would really be interested in kind of being a liaison between tribal nations and industry if they choose to invest in that. I'm also really interested in, in developing and discussing public lands a lot more um, and extraction on public lands and what that might mean in the long term. Because again, so many of places, and we've seen particularly in the last couple of years of so many places um, that are public lands that are being opened up for extraction that tribes have ancestral claims to. In some areas, those are places that women do coming of age ceremonies to. So it particularly really? impacts women communities um, in, a, in, in a disproportionate way. So I think that those are things that I want to bring more attention to. But I also think it could be a challenge when the idea of that many Native communities are talking about is these areas are sacred landscapes. And that's not something that as many people tend to understand. And you tend to see this whole, this conflict of values of economic development versus sacred landscapes. And like economic development is always kind of highlighted more. Um, and that's something I think what we need to discuss, discuss more and kind of trying to find some solutions because it is a balance in our communities. But I also don't want to say it's all doom and gloom because I will yeah. say that one thing that's been really exciting to see um, the outdoor industry is a four, $413 billion industry as of 2016. And we've seen a lot of tribes traditionally not want people to outdoor recreate on those areas. But now we're actually seeing that there's this understanding across different positionalities that for us as a tribe, this area might be sacred. But for you as an outdoor recreation user, you kind of find the same spirituality in your own way at these places. And so that's, I think, what's been really exciting to see is this bridging of passions and of desire to protect these sacred places. I love this idea of like being like, I guess, a recreator. Yes. I don't know. Um, and a scientist and like all these different things. And I, I'm really into national parks. And so I love the idea of like preservation and and all of that. I want to be a trail runner. <laughs> you just want to be a trail. Do it. I then. You should do it. What's stopping I, you? Yeah, what's no, stopping you? I don't like running. Well, well. <laughs> not, uh, well that's, can that's, you make yeah. yourself like it? Can't you make yourself like it? I don't um, think so. I don't think it works like that, to Lydia. Yeah, yeah we, maybe she could get you into trail yeah, running. That's true. Yeah, that's yeah. True. No, we should we should definitely do um, we can talk to her about that. Uh, but we did kind of talk to her then kind of about like, what happens to these products and, and where they go and, and the like because we're talking about like recreating areas and the beauty of the land, like what happens to all this waste and what's going on in the environment. Yeah, so I think it really depends on the site. And again, I work on active mining sites, which have I think the industry has gotten a lot better at how they deal with how they handle the mining waste product itself. So a lot of them are pretty devoid of heavy metals. The biggest waste issue is just how finely ground up the sediment or the, the, the waste product is. And that's the biggest health issue, not the heavy metals that you see at these legacy mining sites. Mm-hmm. So I just want to clarify that real mm-hmm. quick. Um, but what's, what I tend to see most of them is that they kind of become wilderness areas. Um, and so there's actually somewhere in, I think, Tennessee that one of the reclaimed mining sites, they made it into a big biking park. Oh, wow. Um, which is cool. A lot of them, but in the Southwest, it t- they tend to be kind of like ranching areas um, because the plants that they use in those places don't bioaccumulate, right? It's really important. That's a really yeah. important component of it as well. But I also have seen that an old mining site has already energy infrastructure in there. So some of them become solar farms. 
Um, some pl have built community centers on top of those places or different community or um, infrastructure. So it really is just so site dependent on both what the community wants and what kind of commitment they've made with the mining company that has established there. I actually know uh, that bike park. She's t I think it. I think it's the right one. Um, there's one in Knoxville. Uh, it's a big mountain bike park. That's uh, it's where my partner's from. I've been there, but yeah, it's super neat. It's like, oh god, it's big. I mean, did you bike down it? I have. Yeah, it's super neat. No, it's it's really cool to see like these reclaimed sites actually being used for things. Um, that's great. Like I know what's going on there. That's one thing I don't like mountain biking. No. Really? Oh my gosh, I love it. I feel like I, I would enjoy mountain biking. Oh, it's so like there's so much <laughs> adrenaline. Yeah, it's because just... you might flip over the handlebars and break your neck yeah but you might get hit by a car in dc so true calculated always risks. a trade-off i'm a very low risk taker okay all right <laughs> well uh we uh because of the way like this was set up we only had a we didn't have very long to talk to uh lydia and we can always ask um look back and say like oh i wish you would have asked the questions but uh at the end of the interview we just straight up asked her like hey is there anything that we haven't covered that we, you would like to um to talk about yeah, well, I think one thing I just I really want to advocate and highlight, you know, is this is primarily a science podcast, mm -hmm. um, but there are so many different types of science and ways of knowing. And when I grew up, I didn't really I saw like I thought a scientist was Bill Nye. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize how many experts I had within my own community, you know, people who knew science, who knew plants, who knew pla who knew animals and knew their migration patterns. Mm -hmm. Right. Those are just things I didn't grow up and thinking was actual science until I really came to grad school. And I started to think in taking American Indian studies courses and really started to like challenge what I thought data and science is. Um, and so I really want the audience to think about data. And, and when we exclude these other ways of knowing, we miss out on this huge data set. Um, of looking at traditional arts and how that actually has been recorded um, as really good evidence. The first, I would say the first naturalist guide of how plants have changed over time is looking at traditional beadwork and looking at traditional basket making, right? Tell so me more. Okay, so <laughs> well, there's this really great image, and this is kind of where a lot of this is thought thinking for me has come from. That's um, a Dakota floral beadwork. And there's actually a couple of climatologists, I think, in University of Wisconsin, who are looking at this Dakota beetle floor, floor work, floral work, excuse me, and looking at how it's changed over the last 50 years. Oh, wow. And because people are beating what they know, right? Mm -hmm. And we see that in the Southwest and like the, um, in the Gila River tribe, they actually make these really beautiful baskets out of reeds that grow in the river system there. And what they've seen is like the types of reeds that they're using have changed over time. And so it's a really important part of wow. data that could be analyzed, right? Yeah. The other part is that talking to the community members about why they've picked these reeds in certain areas. So one of the, the projects I'm involved with is actually talked to the community members and they, the community members are informing the environmental department of the tribe. And they said, hey, we noticed that this area where the actually reclaimed water is at, the reeds don't bend as well there. And if the materials that we're making these baskets don't come from pierced places and it's going to have negative impacts on us. Mm -hmm. And so they've actually now as a result allocated a different area for the basket makers to go and collect those reeds from. So this is a way of like the community members informing the scientists, which I think is really powerful. In my own tribe, it's a lot about oral history. That's how we disseminate certain information, and it's actually gender-based. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that, you know, there, again, there's these different ways of understanding knowledge and of who are the data holders. 
that's not just, I think, in our Western, and I don't even like to use that term, but in our dominant society, we tend to think of it's just the scientists or, or the politicians, but there's so many other people who hold really important information. Mm-hmm. And the other part I want to just mention is there's over 572 different tribes in the United States, and so all of those tribes hold such valuable information that I really want to see our dominant science really incorporate those ways of knowing. Mm-hmm. And it's old information. It's old knowledge. Not like old as in like old news, but like they, it's been accumulated for a long, long time. It's been accumulating for a long time and it's contemporary and it's constantly being added to, which I think yeah. is really exciting. Like learning about the caribou populations and their migrations that it's happened up in the Arctic is so fascinating. And to learn about mm-hmm. how their diets are changing and how they're seeing that is amazing. To learn about the traditional uses and places that the saguaro cactuses have grown in the Sonoran Desert is incredibly amazing to me. idea there were 572 different tribes in the u.s that's really amazing yeah no yeah i mean that's that's um and i really love this idea too about like uh oral history and passing down knowledge i feel like like with history and storytelling it's like things that are in books or in and through different types of media and like that's just not the case and for yeah. god probably like thousands of years that wasn't the case yeah there's probably uh, so much we don't know about yeah yeah uh nancy does this um does this like I know you said you want to become a trail runner. Will will this like actually give you that oomph? Maybe a little bit of appreciation of the na- the outdoors, the natural world. I have a great deep appreciation. That's <laughs> not it. It's the running part. <laughs> fair, fair. Maybe maybe we'll just go for a walk in the woods sometimes. Yes. <laughs> all right, all. That's all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks so much to Shane and Lauren for bringing us this story, and of course, thanks to Lydia for sharing her work with us. This podcast was produced by me and mixed by Kayla Surrey. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Please rate and review us. Uh, you can find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. And be on the lookout for one more of our special Voices for Science episodes to come. As well as our regular and centennial episodes as well. Oh, so many episodes. So many. Thanks all, and we'll see you next time. Thanks.